Let's turn in uh, God's word at this time to Acts chapter 15. We continue on in our uh, series on the book of Acts, and we are up to chapter 15, sort of a central chapter um, in the account of Acts as uh, what's often called the Jerusalem Council meets. And uh, David Green is going to read for us the uh, first 21 verses of Acts 15. I encourage you at some time today to read through the rest of the chapter as well. But now let's hear God's word um, from David. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Acts 15, verses 1 through 21. This can be found on page 1718 in your pew Bibles. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and, and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem and to see the apostles and elders about the quest, this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the, by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our, God, of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this, I will return to and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of man may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
thank you, David. Um, will you bow briefly with me in prayer? Holy Spirit, this is uh, the story of your church, and uh, we are in a long line of churches since then, but still ruled by one Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. And so we ask that you would speak to us today and speak clearly. Use, use the words that I've prepared and uh, open our hearts that we may hear them and apply them to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, one of the uh, first things you realize when you become involved in service to the church is that the church seems to love meetings. We have a lot of meetings. Um, when I was a kid, my dad was an elder in the church, and it seemed like he was always going to church meetings. And my, my kids probably uh, have thought the same thing about me. And I'm sure if you're involved in church leadership here at this time or have been in the past, you've probably had those discussions at home yourselves. You're going to another meeting why does the church have so many meetings? Why do we meet about everything? Well, I think we have at least um, a partial answer here in Acts chapter 15 as the church gets together for one of its first ever meetings. In fact, it's often called a council, probably better name in our terms. It's a synod because it's not dealing with just one congregation. It's dealing with the church as a whole. But meetings, okay? We're going to look at this meeting that's taking place here in Acts 15. I just want to first give a brief description of, of what this meeting really is about. And then we want to ask the question, what prompted this meeting in the first place? And finally, we're going to look at the decision that comes down um, from the Jerusalem church leaders. And, and we're going to look at how that decision probably is very much about the distinction between justification and sanctification, okay? Justification and sanctification. But let's begin really with, what's this meeting all about? Why is it taking place? And I guess the short reason would be this, because not all Gentiles are like Cornelius, okay? Not all Gentiles were like Cornelius. Remember what we said about Cornelius just a few weeks ago? I, I compared him with, uh, with Sidney Portier in the, in the film, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? And, and what I tried to say was just like Sidney Portier was such a perfect man in every way that the only thing you could have against him in those days was his race, Cornelius is, is very much the same figure in, in Acts. He's such a wonderful man, such a wonderful Gentile, that the only thing you could have against him, really, is his race. I mean, he was a God-fearing man. In other words, he was familiar with the Jewish religion and all the Jewish rituals and the things that they do and, and did. He was, um, he was a man of generosity to the poor. He was a man who prayed regularly. The only problem, we said, that you could have had with Cornelius was the fact that he was a Gentile, okay? In many other ways, you probably could not even have distinguished him from many of the Jews of his day. But now, okay, now as the church continues to grow, and the church in Antioch 
begins to actually send out missionaries into the Gentile world, now the people who they are meeting and the people who are putting their faith in Christ, the people who are now coming into the church are everyday, run-of-the-mill sorts of Gentiles. People who were not familiar with, with the Jewish customs or traditions or any of that. They didn't know where to sit in the church. They didn't know that there was a Jewish side and a Gentile side. They just plunked themselves right down on the, on the Jewish side. And they kept bringing pork and beans to all the Jewish socials, right? They just weren't familiar with the customs, with what they were supposed to do. And so the question arose, what do you do with these types of people, right? They're coming into the church. They don't know us. They're offensive in how they live their lives. What do we do with them? And the big question is, must they first become Jewish in order to be saved? Okay? Is it enough just to put your faith in Jesus, or must you actually become Jewish and adopt all of their cultural ways to be saved? Okay? So that's really the question that comes up here in this, uh, in this first synod. Now, what prompted this whole thing? What prompted this whole discussion? Well, if you look at verse 1... This is it. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch. Okay, this is Syrian Antioch now. And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you can't be saved. All right? You can't be saved unless you are circumcised or unless really you obey all the customs of Moses. Salvation depends on that very fact. All right? Now, this would have been a little bit surprising, right? Talk about your best seeker, unfriendly methods of bringing people into the church, okay? Well, you have to believe in Jesus, okay? We got that down. Oh, yeah, by the way, we didn't tell you this, but you're going to need a little surgery as well. It's a fairly simple surgery, but might be a little delicate. Um, you can see the Gentiles hesitating, right? Kind of like, Mm. Um, you didn't tell me about that one. Now, who were the people who were teaching this? This is what I want to get at. Who were the people who were teaching this? If you look at verse 24, here you get the letter that was actually sent out to the church in Antioch, and we're told in verse 24 who these people were. We have heard that some went out from us, so went out from the church in Jerusalem, without our authorization and disturbed you. They went out without our authorization. These people were not authorized to teach. In other words, they didn't speak for the church. They were not official representatives of the church. They had no authority to say what it is that they were saying. Now, friends, this is something that's really important, I think, for us to understand about the church and that there is a word that goes out that is authoritative from the church but there are also a lot of words that go out unauthorized right where does our authority come from when we teach in the church 
Well, it comes from Christ himself. We've referred to that the past couple of Sundays, right? There's, there's kind of a chain of authority. Jesus Christ himself gathered his disciples around him, the apostles. He taught them, he trained them, and then he sent them out. They formed the church in Jerusalem. And then that church formed the church in Antioch. And what's happening here in Acts chapter 15 is the church in Antioch follows that chain of authority back. They go back to Jerusalem, back to the apostles. Now they have elders in the church as well. But the idea is they're going back to the teachings of Christ himself. That's where the authority comes for all teaching in the church. That's where the gospel comes from, the gospel of Christ. And we have to always be asking, are we teaching in the church what Jesus taught? Okay, Is our teaching authoritative? It comes down to really controlling the message, right? We're all familiar with that idea of controlling the message. Just about every organization in our world is concerned with controlling their message, right? Think about uh, McDonald's Corporation for a moment. What's the, what's the real strength of McDonald's? Is it, is it the fact that their food is really nutritious? Is it the fact that their food is fresh? Or is it the fact that you can go to just about any McDonald's on the face of the earth and you know exactly what you are going to get, right? You know exactly what a French fry at McDonald's is going to taste like no matter what McDonald's you go to. Um, when Jackie and I were on sabbatical, I, th I think it was last summer, um, <coughs> excuse me, and we were in, I think it was the city of Vienna. You get them mixed up after a while. But there was a day we were there, and we must have bypassed a thousand really good restaurants, and we sought out a McDonald's. And we did that because we wanted something familiar to eat, okay? I wanted a Big Mac, and she wanted a Diet Coke. <laughs> and so we found a McDonald's because we knew exactly what we were going to get. We were going to get something familiar. Now, imagine if we had gotten there, okay, and there was some, some random owner had decided, well, I'm going to do crinkle fries instead of the regular fries, or I'm going to do tater tots here at this McDonald's, or I'm going to do Diet Right instead of Diet Coke. That would disappoint you, right? Because that, those single McDonald's franchises, they have to be carrying out the mission of the overall corporation. The corporation puts a tight rein on the menu. They control the message. And that's not only important in corporations like McDonald's. In fact, it's even more urgent in the church of Jesus Christ. It's more urgent that the gospel that we preach is the same gospel that comes from Jesus, the same gospel that comes from the apostles, okay? We always need his stamp of approval on our teaching. This is one reason, friends, why the church has so many meetings, okay? If you're a young person, if you're anyone, who wants to profess their faith in the Christian Reformed Church, what do we make you do? We make you go to a meeting, right, with all of the elders. Why do we do that? It's because we want to make sure that you understand that your salvation is not based on your own works, your own, the good things that you've done in life, but it's based only on the work of Jesus Christ. 
And, and we have classes meetings that before a pastor can be ordained and start teaching people, the classes wants to make sure that this pastor understands the gospel of grace and is not going to be teaching a different gospel, a gospel of works, a gospel different from what Jesus taught us. And this is why life group leaders in the church and Sunday school teachers in the church and youth leaders and any other teacher in the church needs to be authorized and needs to submit to the authority of the church council so that you're not going off and randomly teaching a gospel that's different from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we go rogue, what are the kinds of areas that we go rogue in? They're the very same kinds of areas that the church in Jerusalem was going rogue in. Areas like race, okay, and politics, and all of those sorts of things where we start saying, you know what, you have to be like me to be saved. And sometimes we've got it wrong. And it's not an authorized message. This is why we have meetings in the church. It's to keep the church on task. It's to make sure that it's the real gospel that is being proclaimed. The real gospel that's being proclaimed. Now, we just have to remember that, friends. The gospel of grace, the gospel of grace is so foreign to us. It's so foreign to this world that it's, it is very hard and difficult to teach. And therefore, we always want to make sure that the message is authorized. Now, this is where we get into the content, the content of the decision. Okay? And in short, I think what the Jerusalem Council is saying is, friends, we always have to be aware of the distinctions between justification and and sanctification all right first let's think about justification and it's very clear here that the council has determined that the gentiles do not have to become jews first in order to be saved it's not our works that justify us look at verse 11 peter says this we believe it is through the grace of our lord jesus that we are saved, that we, the Jews, are saved, just as they, the Gentiles, are saved. Okay? It's through grace that we are saved. So, we, the Jews, are saved by grace, and so are the Gentiles. It's not by keeping the laws and customs of Moses. And Peter goes on to say, why would we do that? We've already understood that we're not saved by keeping the customs of Moses. Now you're going to tell the Gentiles that they have to keep them? No. If we do that, we're losing the whole gospel of grace, right? We're justified, we're saved by the work of Jesus Christ, which is an act of God's grace. <clears throat> Where did that teaching come from? Because really, it was a new kind of teaching. Right? It was a new kind of teaching for the, for the Jewish church that now anyone could come to God without keeping the laws and customs. There are three things that, that Peter and, uh, and Paul and Barnabas appeal to and also James. James, who is, we believe, the head of the church here and he's the brother of Jesus. It's that James that we're talking about. There are three things that lend to that decision. One is new revelation, okay, confirmed by experience, and 
um, through the filter of Scripture. Okay, new revelation. What was the new revelation? Well, Jesus came to Paul himself, didn't he, and said, I'm going to send you out as apostle to the Gentiles. Jesus came to Peter in a vision about uh, the sheet with all the food and basically said, look, Peter, Gentiles are no different from Jews. There was new revelation from God. That was confirmed by experience. The Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles just like he fell on the Jews. And there were signs and wonders to confirm that it truly was the Holy Spirit. And all of this was found and tested by Scripture. And that's what James refers to with his, uh, his quote from Amos, that the Gentiles, too, have always been a part of God's family, and therefore they can be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is where things get confusing, all right? They affirm the fact that we are saved by grace through the work of Christ. But when you get to the end of the passage, the end of what David read, it says, but hold on now, we're going to give you some new regulations, okay? We're going to add four things and say, these four things you still need to keep. You still need to do. Four of them. Don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Okay? Don't eat blood. Don't eat meat from strangled animals. Don't engage in sexual immorality. What's going on? I mean, it seems like they're reversing their big decision. They just said... We're not saved by following these Jewish customs. And now it seems like they're going back on their word and saying, but, but hold on, uh, we do want you to keep some of these Jewish customs. And that's what it seems like these things, these things do seem to be Jewish customs. But we're not entirely sure. Because you look at these customs, and here's the other problem, Three of them seem to be ceremonial kinds of things, cultural kinds of things, food laws, right? Don't eat blood, don't eat meat from strangled animals. That was part of uh, the Jewish law in Leviticus. But then there's also this law about abstain from sexual immorality, which seems to be a moral law that would apply across all cultures. And it seems like the Jerusalem Council is just kind of muddying the waters here and saying, well, we're saved by grace, but we still want you um, to do these things and follow these laws. So what's going on? Well, again, I think this is where we have to distinguish between justification and sanctification. These obligations, friends, are not about justification. They're about sanctification. They aren't things we do before we're saved or in order to be saved. They're things that we do if we are genuinely saved. Okay? Let's think about um, verses 8 and 9, just a moment. If you look at what Peter says there in verse 8, he says, God knows the heart. He always has. He has always looked at the heart, right? This goes back to David when, when God was choosing a king for his people. Remember Samuel started bringing, um, bringing his brothers before, um, before God and saying, wow, you know, here's Eliab, he's, he's, he looks like kingly material. I mean, he's tall, he's strong, he's built like a king. And God says, no, that's not the one. And then the next brother comes, and the same thing. This is a kingly guy, and God says, no. And in the end, God says, I don't look at the outside, I look at the heart. I always have. It's the heart that matters. 
And then in verse 9, Peter goes on, He made no distinction between Jews and Gentiles, that is God. God made no distinction between Jews and Gentiles, for he purified their hearts by faith. He purified their hearts. That's justification. But friends, what we have to understand is that justification that happens in our hearts, when God purifies our hearts, that gets lived out on the outside, doesn't it? It shows itself on the outside. People with purified hearts live differently. When you think about all of the Jewish ceremonial laws, okay, and, and the Jews often got these confused. They, had, they, they seemed to have this idea that if we keep all of these laws, that will save us. When really, God said, no, you are already my people, okay? Your hearts belong to me. I have claimed your hearts, and you claim in your heart to be my people, and then God said, this is how I want to distinguish you from all the other peoples of the world. Okay, you're going to eat differently, you're going to act differently, and the world will know that you are my people. You are my spouse, my wife, committed to me. Right? So part of those Jewish laws were meant to distinguish God's people from all the other peoples of the world, to show that their hearts belonged to God. What are these laws, what are these new regulations that are given to God's people here in Antioch? What are they meant to do? They're still meant to distinguish God's people. If your hearts have been purified, that's going to show itself in a whole variety of ways. It's going to come out in the way that you live. Now, we said that these seem like ceremonial laws, and they do. They do seem to come out of the book of Leviticus, but we also think that they have a lot to do with pagan rituals, right? Um, no food that's been dedicated to idols. And then drinking of blood seems to be another pagan ritual. Things like that. And what God seems to be saying is, look, you are my spouse, even as my New Testament people. I am in covenant relationship with you, you have to express that to the world. You're not idol worshipers any longer. And so you don't engage in those kinds of things. And you don't engage in sexual immorality, which is another covenant kind of deal, right? We are God's covenant partners. We are his spouses. It's very interesting, I think, here, that James doesn't say about sexual immorality, he doesn't say, okay, I want Jews to marry Jews and Gentiles to marry Gentiles. You would think if he was trying to pacify the Jews here in some way, that's what, exactly what he would say, but he doesn't. That wall has been broken down in Jesus Christ, and James doesn't start to rebuild it. But he does outlaw all other sexual immorality. Because sex is a covenant renewal ceremony. It follows up a promise with an act that says again and again, I belong to you, you belong to me. And what James is saying is this is still in effect for all my New Testament church. You belong to God. 
and he belongs to you. You shall have no other gods. Now, now think about this, friends. The question then becomes, well, as God's New Testament people, do we have to still keep these laws and regulations today? And I would say yes. If that's what they're about, if they're about not worshiping idols, yes, we are faithful to one God. They still apply to us. The thing is, there are more than just these four, right? You have to remember the time that these were written. The New Testament church had no New Testament. They had no New Testament at this point. They only had the Old Testament. And what is so much of the New Testament? What does it tell us? What does it contain? It says, this is how you live out your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's going to, it's going to come out and flow out of your lives in so many more ways. And it does, right? Give you a couple of examples. If the Holy Spirit creates kindness in your heart, that's going to come out in the way that you speak to your spouse, isn't it? And your marriage is going to be different from many, many marriages in the world. It comes out in other ways as, as well. Um, purity. If God creates purity in your heart through Jesus Christ, it's going to impact the way that you dress. You're going to dress more modestly in public because you reflect the fact that your heart has changed and you belong to Jesus Christ. Um, good manners. Jesus taught us to be hospitable, right? He said, as I have accepted you, I want you to accept others. As I have made room for you in the family of God, I want you to make room for others. What's one way that that very practically comes to the surface. We have good manners when we sit down to eat. All right? Children, if you think about this, have you ever let a belch go at the table and your mom and your dad give you that look of death? There's a reason for that. And it's because when you do something like that, you're not being very hospitable to the people around you. You're not showing them a lot of respect. You're not showing them that they are welcome at your table and you're making space for them. But does the fact that you don't belch at the table, does that make you better than others who do? No. Does God look at those who who belch at the table and say, well, you're not qualified for salvation? No. See, this is where sanctification and justification begin to rub. And friends, we often get it wrong. And we often look at it as if, well, Jesus Christ has changed my heart and that has impacted the way I live. But then we begin to think, but if other people don't live like that then they don't deserve salvation. They must not be eligible. And that's wrong. That's where we have to go back again and again to the main point of the Jerusalem Council, and that is we are saved, all of us, by grace and grace alone. These things distinguish us 
They distinguish us. And friends, we're about to engage in a meal and sit down at a table that distinguishes us from the world. It distinguishes us as the people of Jesus. But it does not separate us. It does not segregate us from the world. It simply distinguishes us. And you might say it's a meal of reauthorizing. Jesus reauthorizes you and me at this meal by reminding us that we are all saved purely by grace. And that's the message that he wants us to take to the world. Not to avoid the world, but to go out into the world with that message that you too can have this grace of God through the work of Jesus Christ. Let's, uh, let's come to the table of our Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, remind us here again today that we are still your covenant people, that we belong to Jesus, and, and that's going to show itself in so many different ways in our lives. But Lord, remind us again and again that your grace that you have shown to us does not make us superior, better than anyone else in this world. But you so much long for your gospel to continue to go out, continue to save, continue to purify hearts. And as those hearts become pure, our lives begin to change more and more and more into the likeness of Jesus himself. Be present in this meal and reauthorize us as your people to be representatives of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.